Launching Collective Sandbox at Portsmouth Comic Con 2019. Hey, good coming. Welcome to the panel. This is the panel with Roy Thomas. A round of applause for Roy. Doesn't need much of an introduction, but uh, editor in chief, a Marvel co-creator with so many writers, so many great uh, properties at Marvel, and to DC as well. The first question for Roy. We'll start at the beginning. We'll go back to how he got into the medium in the first place. What was the touch paper regarding your interest in the medium in the first place? I know you started reading comics when you were young. Okay. Uh, tell me if you can hear me. Okay. All right. Is it okay? Okay. Good. So, that, so I don't have to. So I don't have to get any closer. Anyway. Uh, I just, uh, my mother told me that I spotted some comics at this uh, you know, drugstore at my little hometown in Missouri when I was about four. I couldn't read yet. Uh, might have been three, but probably four. She'd never really seen any. You know, she grew up in depression, probably never even saw a comic book before, you know, and so forth. And so she bought me one. It was probably something like Superman or Batman, more likely, I think, than anything else. And uh, she, she read them to me for a little while. And... Eventually, I learned to, uh, you know, read for myself. So I had a nice vocabulary. By the time I entered the first grade, uh, we didn't have kindergarten in those days. But uh, of course, it all had to be in capital letters, right? You know, <laughs> it took me a little longer to learn lowercase letters. So it really was embedded in you right from the beginning, almost. Like yeah. The, the other thing is that uh, I remember on the last panel outside. Uh, thank God, this one's inside. Um, <laughs> that that uh, they were. Uh, um, what was I going to say? Uh, oh, most they, Steve Englehart was talking about how, you know, like most readers, boys or, or girls, and tend to be more boys, uh, they, he gave up reading comics, you know, I don't know, sometime 10, 12, hit puberty, whatever it is, and then he came back to it, in his case, as, many, as people do in high school, college, in his case, later. Uh, the, the difference with, between me and people like that is that I never quit reading comics. I mean, I, I, you know, I, mean, I, I suppose I, I decreased reading them a little when I was in my teen years, but that was not because uh, of anything other than the fact that there weren't superhero comics that much at that time in the 50s. You know, that was the period after they'd sort of died out. And I was, while I was still interested in comics, I bought westerns, I bought humor, I bought Mad and Pogo. They were my two favorites. And a lot of other comics, although not crime or romance or much horror, but so, I never gave up reading them. So during the pre-code era, which has um, led up to the Hepburn and Set hearings and the Comics Code, yeah. was that not your favorite era? I mean, was that because it was very deregulated? So many comics. You mean like the early '50s and all that? Yeah, '50 to '55. Yeah, that period. Uh, yeah, I mean, there were a lot, there were actually a lot of good comics I liked, but it was really a it was really a low point. For me, because I didn't really read the EC comics, good as they were, I, because they were horror comics things, and I just uh, it, I wasn't at ease with those. I could see they had good writing and artwork. I would glance at them on the newsstands, and remember them years later from from that momentary glance. I'd remember the ending, and I, when I'd run to a guy ten years later, I'd say, "What about the story where this happens or that happens, and so forth?" He'd say, "I thought you said you never bought these." I said, "I never, never bought any of them. I saw them for two seconds on the stands once, glanced through them, saw the ending, and that was it." But you know, I just didn't buy many because I was really depressed. Once they killed all-star comics at the turn of 1951, then the Justice Society died, and with it that meant Hawkman, 
Green Lantern, The Flash, everybody except Wonder Woman was suddenly gone. And I was reduced to Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman, who were not my favorites, and uh, a few other characters, but they were mostly dying out over the next couple of years. You know, I just wasn't quite as enthusiastic about things and so forth, but I just accepted the fact that was the way things were going to be with comics from now on, and I was just going to enjoy them less, and that was perfectly okay. I still enjoyed the ones I enjoyed until one day in the summer of 1956, when I went uptown to uh, one of the drugstores, the two drugstores in town, to buy some fireworks, because July 4th was coming. It must have been a day or two before. And uh, could have even been on. They probably didn't even close for the 4th then. And, uh, and I saw this thing on the newsstands, which says, Showcase presents The Flash. And it was a guy who didn't look like The Flash to me. He's all in a big red costume with just a yellow lightning bolt in his chest. But it was called The Flash. It was DC Comics. And it looked like, you know, the same character just finally got around to changing his clothes, you know. And, uh, and today that was great because it meant, you know, maybe that kind of character could come back. They'd made all these various attempts, you know, a couple of years earlier with the, the, the Captain America and so forth, but they never lasted, so who knew? So I just grabbed it up and over the, and it took several years, but I was glad to see those characters come back and that revived my, my interest. But I'd have kept on reading comics, you know, uh, no matter what, I just adjusted to whatever they they had. Uh, you know, that would just be a certain percentage of my reading. And when you, you're a Golden Age historian, as much as anything, you're responsible for bringing back a lot of Golden Age characters. When you were originally reading the, the during that period, say the early forties to, to, to the end of the middle forties, early forties, not that old. <laughs> old enough. I don't hold you. Um, yeah, that period. Were there any favourite Golden Age characters? I mean, we can include ones which are generally forgotten the ones that were in NATO, for example, like Fighting Gang. Well, most of, the ones that I, most of the ones that were the best have been either brought back or people know them. You know, somebody's brought back some, almost everything now, at least in a few stories. My favorite was always Hawkman, uh, as much because of Joe Kubert's artwork, although I followed it even when other artists drew it, because I loved that design of the character. It was so nutty. He had these big wings, you know, and he had this weird mask that had the beak. You know, it actually had a beak upper and lower when I started reading it. It had wings on his on his helmet even in addition to the other wings and there was just something and, and Joe Kubert was this fantastic artist even at that time he was maybe 24, 25 already a veteran of the field who'd come into it like at the age of 13 or something. And he got so much better as well. That's and he got, yeah he got better but I still like his 1946 work better than anything else which, which he never could quite understand. But <laughs> I, I, you know, I've got one page of Joe Kubert artwork at home and it's from 1946 you know. I don't care. I could care less if I ever had a Sergeant Rock page, even though that was probably better. Although I would love to have had his 1950s Tor, or maybe even a Viking Prince page. But Tor was, I think, his best work at about 51 or so. Yeah, I remember that. I mean, yeah, he kind of got segued into the DC thing in the early 60s with Brave and the mm -hmm. Bold. But that was my favorite. But I liked, you know, all that stuff and, and so forth. I, I read almost, you know, I didn't, couldn't buy them all. I mean, you know, dimes were hard to come by in, in, in the 40s. My family uh, didn't have that much money. And so you had a budget. I had a budget. Sometimes I had to, the things I always bought, I always bought a copy of All-Star. I always, I think I bought every, uh, every month, I think I managed to buy Flash comics because that had Flash, Hawkman, and Johnny Thunder, and sometimes later the Atom in it. So it had four of the members of the Justice Society. I liked Green Lantern a lot. I loved Captain Marvel, the original Captain Marvel. Uh, I liked the Marvel characters. The stories weren't so good, but I loved the concept in order of Human Torch, Submariner, and Captain America. Not as much Captain America. He was okay, but... So the Tommy you know. ones were not that special to you compared to, say, the DC ones in the, in the 40s? The I like DC the best, but... Uh, and Fawcett would, be, would have been right up there. They had the best writing, I think. I, timely, 
Marvel, they never paid much attention to the writing in those days. You know, Stan was, was happy, I think, if the pages came out in the right order. And, and because that's really all they cared about. They, they really didn't care that much, I think. And a lot of the other companies, you know, cared less. I'm sorry if I'm not ever looking over here because I guess it's because, you know, look at me, okay? you're there and, yeah, right. I'm so did sorry. you ever read anything like the, any of the Fox titles that the really minor ones like The Flame or um, Men Well, The Flame was gone, but The Flame was gone. But I read the late Blue Beetle, who was a bad character. Like one month he was shooting guns, the next month he was flying around in bulletproof. I mean, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't, that was a bad, schlocky company. But, and I read Phantom Lady because, you know, she was, you know, I was, at, at, you know, I was eight, nine years old, there's this, Woman in you know kind of a scanty outfit and a cape running around. That's that's that was interesting. Well, at that point, yeah, the good girl not thing coming. Yeah, yeah. yeah there wasn't much of it. You Wonder Woman, and nobody was going to ever get lustful over Wonder Woman the way she was drawn. You know, but she was a good character. Yeah, but I just liked all that stuff. I liked I just liked the media, but I also liked, you know, as I said, Mad and Pogo and you know, uh, Uncle, you know, the, the Donald Duck comics. You know, I didn't know about Karl Barks at the time, but I read that stuff. You know, uh, quite often, and I could tell that was better than most of the. Funny Animal, but I read DC's Funny Animal. They had the Dodo and the Frog, which I liked a lot, you know. Nobody remembers the Dodo and the Frog, but I liked that. Oh, Shows, I liked everything, I, I was indiscriminate. Yeah, somebody, you get to the late, you get to the late 50s, and suddenly the Silver Age is sort of about to begin. I mean, it happened by chance with Marvel because of the implosion and had to reduce the vast amount of titles and the distribution deal with DC, etc. Mm -hmm. Did you notice things were afoot when you started? Obviously you would have, you would have noticed, because you started Alter Ego. Yeah. Did you think that things were going to start to happen again as a result of well, changes? It, yes, I did, but I wasn't the one who started Alter Ego. That was uh, a guy I hadn't met at the time. He was a fellow Missourian, but by that time a college, young college professor, about six or seven years older than me. I was 20 or so, and he was, you know, uh, 20, late 20s, 26, 27. Uh, and he's decided to, he wanted to start a newsletter. Uh, not just not a fanzine, which is a term that came from science fiction fandom, but he wanted to start a newsletter about the return of the superheroes. He wasn't thinking about the 40s so much, or the future, just the return of them. You know, the fly, which at that time was mostly DC, and also the Fly at Archie. You know, and so in 19, in late 1960, right about the time we started communicating, we were put together by Julius Schwartz and Gardner Fox of DC Comics, because they said you both like Justice Society, maybe you'd enjoy. Uh, you know, communicating or something. So, and it turned out that that turned out to be, you know, pretty much of an understatement. And Jerry decided to start this newsletter. Uh, it was going to be called the Just JSA JLA Newsletter. And then he went to New York by sheer coincidence uh, because he was a professor and he he uh, had to speak at a college in in the New York area. So he went by DC Comics. And Julie Schwartz, you know, the editor of Flash, Justice League, Green Lantern, who had been the editor of All Star and other comics back in the forties. Showed him some science fiction fanzines, especially Zero with an X, the, uh, which was a sort of combination science fiction and general fanzine and had articles on, on comics in them. Uh, and Jerry, at this point, changed his, he, he, he wasn't thinking about a newsletter anymore. He wanted to do a whole magazine. Uh, he didn't do it on, on high-class mimeograph, the, the way that uh, the Lupos did Zero, but he did it on Spirit Duplicator, which is, you know, it's purple. You know, it was just, you had to put in the masters and turn them, and you, you could only get 100 or 150 copies. Then you got to, you know, then you got to trace a new master or type a new master or something. It was just an awful, you know, process. As just, just this side of carving on, on cave walls, you know, as far as we're concerned. Thank God I never had to do any of that because I have no, you know, he did all that. All I did was send in stuff. I was called the co-editor 
of uh, the early issues of Alter Ego, but I never edited anybody except myself. You know, uh, Jerry it was the was the editor. I was just in there as a contributor, really. Yeah, now that time you're also writing a lot of letters to uh, DC mainly, is that right? Mostly DC. Uh, mostly, yeah. The, when when I remember the first bunch of letters I wrote, one of which then got published was. I sent letters to three editors, I, with, not by name, because it wasn't, the name wasn't listed the, uh, uh, as that individual thing. I sent one to the editor of Green Lantern, and one to the editor, which was just, actually hadn't started, he was still in showcase, one to the editor of Justice League that had just started, and one to the editor of The Flash. Well, you know, they all go to the same guy, Julius Schwartz, because he was the editor of all of them, though not listed as such. And he, he's the, that's when he got back to me and gave me Gardner Fox's home address and said he had not only was writing Justice League, but had uh, been the, written a lot of Justice Society. I, he didn't say that he had actually co-created the series. Uh, and, so, and then Jerry said, oh, I just sold all my old All-Stars a few months ago to this guy named Jerry Bales in Detroit. So he sent me Jerry's address, and that's when we kind of got together. And a couple of months later, Alter Ego came out of it and so forth. But, but uh, you know, if we hadn't done it, probably somebody else would have started it. We, we stole all the stuff from sort of science fiction fanzine, all those terms like fanzine and so forth. They all came from, and the idea of conventions, it all came from science fiction fandom that had been there first starting in the, the 20s and the 30s especially. Yeah, that's what Stephen Schuster came from, as I remember. Yeah, they were science fiction fans, yeah. And uh, the artist John Gienta, uh, who drew Legions of Superheroes later, he had been, was writing uh, science fiction and comics uh, columns for fanzines. And Forey Ackerman was their buddy writing for him, you know, who started the wonderful famous Monsters of Filmland later. Yeah. I mean, what did you think of the Silver Age versions of the gold, of Golden Age characters? Did, did you like them more or less? Or did you find them inferior? Or mm -hmm. did you well, think? I liked them. I missed the other characters, but, you know, I just accepted the fact these guys were never going to, you know, come back because once you've got a new Green Lantern and a new Flash and a Justice League, and a new Adam even that wasn't anything like the old one except, and you had the, Adam, the Hawkman who was very much like, you were never going to see those old characters again, so I just kind of gave up on them, you know, and never figured you'd see them. And all of a sudden, Julian Gardner, however it happened, suddenly, you know, blew Jerry's in my mind by, by doing Flash of Two Worlds, in which, uh, you know, we were always agitating to bring him back. We never gave up on it entirely, but we didn't believe it would really happen. And, and, uh, I think somehow, I think, I think it was probably, it shouldn't have been because we, we didn't buy enough comic books to be a real pressure group. But at the same time, I think that, I suspect that the letters that we wrote, the two of us, and a few other people like us, but the two of us wrote a lot of letters, we probably influenced Julie, uh, Julie Schwartz, the editor, more than we should have because he did things that, you know, it, they weren't inevitable, like bringing back a Golden Age character when you already had another one. And or that one, I think one example, which was almost entirely me, was they did one story with the new version of the three Dimwits characters from The Flash, who was a, they were imitation of the Three Stooges, and I had always kind of kick out of the old comics, so they tried them for one story, they didn't, the readership didn't seem to like them, did another, but I'm sure I'm not the only person that asked for that. And Julius shouldn't have really listened to us, but he did, and sometimes, it, you know, like with the Earth 2 stuff, it worked out because he came up with a really great way to do it. So in other words, all that continuity thing that kind of did begin to spiral out of control was done to you. <laughs> <laughs> to the extent it was possible. I, I'm, I'm really big on continuity in comics because I believe if, if you're expecting people to follow comics more than a few years, and 
You know, at that time, they weren't. They figured four or five years a kid, and then that's the end of them. Then you have to grab some new ones. But if but quickly they discovered, uh, Julie, even before Stan got in the game, that he was getting letters from people in college and high school. I was in college, about to graduate. Jerry was a t uh, college professor. There were a few others. You know, that he was getting letters like that from people saying these are nice versions of the old characters. And I think to a, but to a, to a generation that didn't get to go to college even, you know, because of the depression and various things, I think that people like us made more difference than, as I said, we maybe should have because, you know, we were more educated, we, you know, and so forth. And some people get snowed by that. I mean, you know, if you think of Charlie Gaines and letting uh, Marston come in and, and, and create a weird character like Wonder Woman, he was snowed by him because he was a well-known psychologist, I think, as much as anything, you know. And I, I think that there was a, a certain, Stan had that too, you know, of just being impressed by people because they had a college degree in that day. It wouldn't happen now because everybody's got one, but at that time, you know, uh, it, it made a difference. It's amazing because I didn't know that, 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 in a way, Stanley kind of did steal a march on Julie Schwartz because, as you said, he did, did listen to him. College-age people, mm -hmm. people, people. Well, of Julie didn't really go after them, but he he catered to them anyway. But he wasn't. But he was aware of the fact they weren't very big from the very beginning. One of the earliest letters in 60, by sixty-one, sixty-two at least that Stan wrote to uh, to Jerry Bales. You know, he mentioned that he was consciously going after an older audience. Now, obviously, he was also writing comics kind of the way he wants, but he was also thinking about the audience. And it, it wasn't just an accident. He wasn't, you know, he, he was thinking about the audience and, and he wanted that older audience. He was saying, he didn't know if he'd get it, but it turned out he did. So we fast forward a little bit to the mid 60s. And the irony, of course, is that you went to look at DC first before Marvel, but mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily all that happy an experience with uh, Mort Weisinger on board as uh, then editor. Very few people had a good experience with, uh, with Mort Weisinger, and I wasn't one of them. Well, I, I'd always wanted to work for DC. It, it never would have occurred to me Marvel even wanted anybody. Stan was writing virtually all the books. Never occurred to me he didn't want to. There were only a handful of them. How did I know how long it takes to write a comic book? You know, he's writing and he's doing a great job of them. So I never even thought about that. But uh, I was sort of interested. I wasn't really thinking I could get into the field. Maybe I could write an occasional script from the Midwest. But, you know, it... But it just happened that I got this job offer just after I had accepted a college fellowship and uh, anything to get out of teaching high school. And, uh, you know, so all of a sudden I get a letter from Mort Weisinger offering me the job as the assistant editor of Superman, the Superman comics. I had never exchanged more than like one letter, I think, with Mort Weisinger. But he was a good childhood friend of Julie Schwartz, to whom I did write a lot of letters. So Mort conferred with Julie. He says, I was thinking about hiring this guy. Write your letters. What do you think? And Julie evidently said, oh, yeah, he's, he's good. He's you know, a young college, uh, high school teacher. And, you know, I like him. You know, and so Mort you know, hired me and then proceeded to torture me. You know? Yeah, I mean, you mind you, in the end, you'd be presiding over a pretty strange period at DC. The Silver Age was mm -hmm. very, very old indeed. Well, they were beginning to feel this pressure from Marvel. During that week or two that I worked there, I mean, I remember Mort calling me in to show me with, with pride this latest cover probably by Kurt Swan or something about Superman. It said, and the, the, big, the big thing he wanted to show me was the title uh, or the, the biggest thing on the cover. It says, it's kill or be killed, because that was the kind of thing that Mort Weiser would never put on a Superman cover. This was mostly about, I wonder if Lois will discover who I am, you know, that kind of thing. It was always about that or, or, or why does Superman suddenly have three heads, you know, or something. It was that kind of thing. But all of a sudden it was kill or be killed and he was wanting to show me that they were beating the competition because he knew I also liked 
Marvel Comics. Didn't know that three days later I'd end up working for them. Yeah, that's that's what happened to you. I mean, you it was a little bit by accident that you got yeah. in contact with Stan Lee. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to meet him. You know, uh, he had sent me a once I had missed somehow I had managed to miss Spider-Man number was it four with Sandman the one that introduced Sandman something like that. And uh, I wrote him a letter, said, could I buy it from the company? And he just sent me a copy. That's the only time I think I ever exchanged a letter with Stan. Uh, I wrote a letter they printed in Fantastic Four number five, the third column, but I never corresponded with Stan. But I wanted to meet him because he was writing the best comics. As much as I like Gardner Fox and John Broom and their stuff, uh, Arnold Drake writing Doom Patrol, I, Stan was obviously writing the best comics. And, and, and plus he'd given me that free Spider-Man. And uh, might be worth something someday, who knew? And uh, so I wrote him a letter. I was at a hotel in Manhattan, but I wrote him a letter to, you know, 20 blocks away or something, because I didn't know about calling or anything. And he, he, he called back a few days later and said, yeah, you know, I, I'm too busy to meet anybody for a drink. I live out on Long Island. I'm never here. He didn't want to meet me or anybody else particularly. He just wanted to go home and write comics and count his money, you know. And uh, so he said, uh, but he says, we got a writer's test. Would you, would, would you be interested in taking that? He says, I'm always looking for a, 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 I'm really looking for a writer. And uh, I wasn't looking for a job. I was miserable at my job, but it never occurred to me really to leave because, you know, you, you know, I was just there for a week or two. You don't give up that easily. It was getting worse, it seemed, rather than better. But still, I, you know, but, I, but who can resist the idea of taking a test, writing some artwork just for the heck of it? So I, you know, maybe I'd even get the meat stand. So I sneak up there in my lunch hour, you know. Uh, it's about 10 blocks away, it takes 10, 15 minutes to walk, and then I, you know, but I have to make that and grab a fast hot dog at Natick's, and then I'm, you know, uh, back, and I just pick it up, but, but Stan doesn't come out, he sends out the secretary, Flo Steinberg, who later became, you know, a good friend, and he, uh, so I sneak it back the next day, I, I wrote it that night, I didn't have time to polish it, I don't, didn't even, couldn't even type at a table, I had to type with the, my little portable sitting on a chair, well, I'm sitting on the bed, and my back just, you know, it was never that good in those days. It was just really got to hurting. It had collapsed on me once or twice before, so I was a little worried about that. But so I just get, okay, no second draft. This is it. The next day, I sneak up, and I go, oh, maybe I'll meet Stan this day. So, But Saul Brodsky, the production manager, comes out, takes it from me, and uh, says, how'd it go? I say, fine. He, that's it. You know, so, well, I, so I just forget about it, because I fear I'll never hear from him again. The next morning, I get a call, and right away, uh, I rec at, at D.C., while well, I'm proofreading a Supergirl story, and uh, there's, uh, and it's Flo on the line. I recognize her very high-pitched voice, you know. She says, hello, Roy, you know. <laughs> I, and I said, and she didn't identify herself, and certainly she hadn't told anybody she was from Marvel calling. They wouldn't have put her through. And she says, uh, and I said, hello, Flo. I recognized her voice for the minute or two I had spoken with her. And uh, she says, I'm a spy today, you know. Can you come over and see Stan at noon? So I sneaked over there again. By this time, it's, the job was getting worse and worse. But again, I still wasn't thinking that much about it. I talked to Stan. He never, he never mentioned the writer's test. I still don't know to this day you know, what he thought exactly of it. But about 15 minutes or so after we met, after we were talking about stuff uh, and so forth, uh, you know, he just gets up and, and walks to the window and looks down on uh, Mass. Now we're on the fourth, fifth floor there. And he says, uh, so what do we have to do to hire you away from National? But D National was the real name of DC at that time. Nobody called it DC in the industry, and you know. And uh, so I said, "Well, just just offer me a job." I said, "I don't like it there." I had been offered 110 bucks a week, and when I got there, he changed it to 100. And uh, <laughs> it was supposed to be a two-month trial period. When I got there, it became two weeks. Uh, although you know, I don't know if it was dead. And uh, 
I said, well, what about the $110? And he point, pointed toward the cubicle where uh, my predecessor still worked, Nelson Bridwell. He said, I can't pay you more than I'm paying that idiot. You know, I mean, I, you can see what a nice guy he was, you know. Uh, Job of the hut, you know, was what he looked like. Anyway, so, uh, so I said, well, you know, so Stan offered me the 110. I'd, I confess, I'd have taken 100. And, uh, you know, so I went back. I was about a half an hour late getting back from lunch. Mort calls me in. He says, well, you know, a couple of the guys around here, I think this was maybe Julie and Ed Eisenberg, who's a production man, and he said, you know, they've been telling me that maybe I'm a little hard on you. I, you know, I could have said, yeah, you think so? But anyway, but he'd been hard on everybody. You know, he, very few people had good experiences with him. And so he starts telling me, well, you know, that uh, just, I forget what it was exactly, because I just kind of interrupted him after a sentence or two. And I said, well, you know, it's very nice, Mort, and, and I appreciate that. And, you know, I admire your work, your talent and everything. But I said, I, it's all kind of academic because I've accepted uh, a job working for Stan Lee. You know, and uh, I didn't say Marvel. I just Marvel. I was working for Stan, and uh, he just stared at me. You know, <laughs> didn't believe it. You know, says I said, you know, and I said, well, you know, I said, you know, I think you need somebody else. I says, I think you should keep Nelson. I said, I think he'll take this abuse you heap out, you know, and so forth, uh, and and he's good. You know, he's better than you think. And uh, I said, but I, but I told Stan that he wanted me to come to work right away. But I said, I'll stay here another two weeks, three weeks, whatever you need, because I won't leave you in the lurch. You know, you. You brought me up here to New York. I won't leave you in the lurch. He said, you're a spy for Stan Lee. Get out. You know, that was it. So thank God he did. Yeah, that Stan had been unhappy to hear I couldn't come back. So here I am like an hour later. I'm back in his office. Here I am, boss, if you still want me. And I ended up writing a Billy the Model story over that weekend. And, and it worked out pretty well. Stan and I, you know, we had our differences. But uh, it was definitely an improvement for Mort Weisinger. But then, you know, three years with an angry mob would have been an improvement for Mort Weisinger. <laughs> And we, he and I never spoke again. I saw him at somebody's funeral about a year later. So someone we knew in passing had died. And we saw each other from across the room, but that was about as close as it came. You know, I would have talked to him, but you know, he, wouldn't, you know, he didn't want to talk to me. Normally, I don't think he was at DC for that much longer. He, sure. he retired about 1970. He was always tra threatening to retire, and they finally took him up on it. And I think he kind of regretted it. And because he only died, he died just a couple of years later. I, I think he, I think he really needed that job. He hated it because he hated doing the stuff for kids. He'd been a science fiction fan like Julie, and he hated. He had a sign up. He took it down every day. Sometime when people would, certain people would come in, but he had a sign. Remember, we are writing for eight-year-olds. You know. I still understand he did that. Uh, yeah, and it, the, the, he was. Pr and, and the other thing is, he, he did this to me, but he did this to a number of other people before and after me. He would drag out a check. He was working for Reader's Digest, which was a really big American. You've seen it, the Digest size magazine. It would do short versions of articles, books, and so forth. Very big magazine at that time. And he did a column for it on things you could get for free, which, of course, he would have been an expert on. And uh, he said, uh, uh, you know, he would drag out a check because he would be paid like, a, you know, a thousand bucks. That's a lot of money back in 65 even, you know. And uh, he, he would always show checks to people, to me and to several other people I knew over the years, to show that he was a real writer. He wasn't doing this stuff. He was a real writer. He wasn't just a guy sitting behind a desk, you know, and so forth. You know, maybe he never cashed that check. Maybe it was the same check for five years. I don't know. But, uh, you know, if, he just really didn't like being in, in comics uh, and everything. He had a love-hate affair with himself. And yet his daughter said that whenever he, he'd say, you know, he wanted to be anonymous, and, but when they go to a resort or something, he said within 20 minutes, everybody knew he was the editor of Superman, you know, because, and they didn't know that from anybody except him. So, he, it was a love affair 
and a hate at the same time with him. That's incredible. If he hadn't been so inflexible, he knows, he knows what would have happened. Because he was a talented guy. He was the co-creator of Aquaman, Green Arrow, Johnny Quick, Vigilante. Yeah, okay, and, and, and he, even if he stole ideas from other people, he moved them around. He was, he was a great puppet master. He was just a horrible human being. <laughs> Speaking of puppet masters, no, that's not quite fair. Um, when you moved to Marvel hmm? and you had Stanley working Puppet master? No, Stan was a puppet master, no doubt about that. Okay. I was going to say mental. I mean, you've mentioned this Both. in the last time. I mean, he was obviously hugely important to you. I mean, you worked with him. Was he easy to work with, generally speaking? Generally speaking, I mean, he was, you know, he knew what he wanted. You knew what he wanted, or at least he would try to make it clear to you. Usually he could. And, you know, if, if you disappointed him, you'd know. But he was, he was polite about it. He wasn't, he wasn't a browbeater. I mean, once in a while, he'd lose his temper about this or that. But he wasn't a browbeater. He wasn't interested in, in he, he understood that you, know, you get more out of people by telling them what's right than wrong. He didn't always do that well, but he generally did. And in the early days, the, the first bad experience I had with him, which was only about a week into it, so, you know, so I was ready, it was not over me, but there was another young writer who had actually worked there for about a week or two before me, named Steve Skates, you know, you know his name? Later he wrote Aquaman and many things for DC, and he didn't work out at Marvel. He was there a couple weeks before me and a few weeks after me, and then he, was let go, uh, and he, he went over to Charlton and ended up doing writing for them for a while, and then moved with Dick Giordano to uh, the editor to DC, and had a nice career, and a good writer. But Stan just didn't relate to him. He had been disappointed. He hired him, and then the guy couldn't proofread. He didn't understand how to proofread a comic. Well, it's a weird thing, but some people take to it, and some don't. I took to it right away because, you know, but somehow Steve, though a big Marvel fan, did not. Uh, he was an English major, I don't quite understand why, but it didn't work. But then he tried writing a Western, it was a two-gun kid or something, and you know, it, the, the splash page wasn't quite right in the dialogue, and he had got me to help him a little, to talk it over before he did it. So when he's berating us with Steve on one side of it and me on the other, and he's berating Steve for this writing, and this is bad and that's bad, and I, I said some little innocuous thing about, well, this, this is fairly good, isn't it? And, and he said, and he just turned to me and he looked at me with this kind of stare. And he said, the less I hear from you at this point, the better. <laughs> that was, you know, so I mean, you know, there were limits, but he was, he was a good boss. But, uh, you know, he could be, you know, kind of stern and everything, you know. And, uh, but mostly he was good. He understood the power of words with, with, with the images. I mean, that was the mm -hmm. key thing about yeah. him. You could conduct the orchestra. I mean, when you started writing the titles that you're, what best known for a Marvel, you know, first of all, there was, well, X-Men is in there, and of course, the Avengers. Um, the writing noticeably became a bit more serious, a bit more sort of sophisticated. Was that to do with the times, uh, to do with how America was evolving into politically, or was it just your contribution? Did you, you notice the... It was just the difference between Stan and, and myself. You know, Stan was the most important person, you know, at, at Marvel, and Jack Kirby maybe a close second, and without Jack, probably Stan wouldn't have been able to do what he did anyway, so it took the two of them. But what I brought was not better writing, per se, or anything like that, certainly not for Marvel, but I think, it, I think it's just the fact that, unlike Stan, who certainly could have you know, benefited from a college education and he had a chance to get one, I think it's just the fact that you know, I, I had a chance to go, to go to college. I was an, you know, not an English major, but I was, became an English teacher and you know, was interested in English history and you know literature. I mean, not not a not a particularly well-read you know person or anything like that. But uh, but what little liter what literary instincts and thoughts I had, I brought to the comics. Uh, Stan did too, but it was you know it was limited to what the Bible you know and so forth, which 
you know, uh, everybody in that generation, you know, grew up kind of familiar with. Even if he was Jewish, he was still familiar with the New Testament too. To some extent, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam, which Stan loved to quote from, uh, a, a certain amount of Shakespeare, based on you know a little reading here and there and seeing the plays and just a nice feel for language, you know. And I had that. Plus, I had, you know, my own reading in a, in a, a lot of different areas. And so forth. So, in that sense, I suppose you know I broadened it. It's the same way that other people came later had other experiences that went beyond, you know, what I have. We just we're just all you know little dwarfs standing on each other's shoulders, and eventually you make a giant, you know. Interesting. Well, you can see how uh, he must have been a bit of Shakespeare in those bullpen bulletins. <laughs> yeah, Stan Stan really liked that. Uh, he always called it the the, the what ho Horatio, but I don't think Shakespeare actually actually said what ho Horatio, but uh, that was Stan the way Stan's way of putting it. He just liked that feel. You notice that Thor over a period of several years, you know, he started off speaking almost like a regular person, and then he became a little more formal, and finally he got to that whole Shakespearean thee thou type of thing. The funny thing is, the very best stuff he did with Kirby right before that, like that story of uh, with Pluto and Hercules and that whole thing in there, was still before he even got to the Thou stage. But he was just evolving and trying things out. And uh, if if this worked, well, maybe he could be a little more formal. Until finally, he was doing that Thou hast, and he was one of only two or three people, myself included, who could do that. Most people didn't understand Elizabethan syntax well enough to do it, and you'd have all these, I'd get somebody else to write it, even a good writer like a Len Wein, who's big, who was pretty good at it, just, you'd suddenly come up with thou hath and things like that. You know, I had, no, it's not thou hath, you know. Only, only Stan and uh, Jerry Conway, and I think, had an instinctive uh, feel for that kind of language. Other people sort of got it to varying degrees. Mm. And eventually abandoned it entirely, so that's just as well. Yeah, I think you pictured Shakespeare, maybe Volstagg is very much uh, full stuff. Oh yeah, full, yeah. That was probably Jack, but if it, you know, I, I, but at the same time, Stan, you know, he made he he had his own ideas about it. He could have done Falstaff based on his own thing. I I would really love to know who had the idea for Volstagg in particular. You know, I was disappointed in the movies because they took no advantage of what those characters were like. They're totally. It's just like the character from, from Shield on TV, Jasper Sitwell. They had a Jasper Sitwell. He had nothing in common except the name with the character of the comics. I always think that's a mistake. They should, you know, use if you're going to come up with that name, use something from the character. Yeah, the war is three would have But Volstagg is a great character, yeah. and from the name right away. But again, it's probably Jack. But if if Jack hadn't done it, Stan could have. It does. It didn't really matter. Um, the sea change in 1970, which you. Well, definitely initiated, which is kind of the barbarian. I mean, it was such a different thing to do at Marvel, having mm -hmm. done just superhero comics. I know we discussed this yeah. before. We were trying to get, you know, more, reach more people. And it was kind of European, more than American, I thought. I felt there's certain European tropes about it. It didn't strike me as that American compared to everything else mm -hmm. you'd done. It's funny because Conan is, yeah, he's set into kind of a, mostly Europe. I mean, it's Africa and Asia, but it's mostly Europe. And yet, he was in many ways as, as American a character as they could be. He's made out by this, you know, 20-something-year-old Texan, you know, who, uh, who liked that kind of thing. But it's underneath, it's got the European froth, and, but the cake is pure American. You know, it, it, Conan is an American. He's not a European. I'm not saying there couldn't be a European Conan, because obviously you could. But Conan is an, Amer is an American in Europe in a certain sense, you know. Come along on the universe. Yeah, yeah, right, sort of. Yeah. But uh, I don't know, it was just something that uh, it, it caught a certain amount of popularity back in the 30s in Weird Tales magazine. It was one of the more popular things in it, but, you know, never made any great shakes until the 60s when the time was just ripe for that kind of fantasy, I guess, or something. You had Tolkien 
and Burroughs coming back and somebody put out, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Conan stories and they, you know, between that, between the stories themselves and the Frank Frazetta covers uh, that visualized it, it became a perfect uh, storm, you know. And we had the Warren magazines also, which, is, which yeah. did have a lot of the former EC artists and Frank Rosetta, so mm. that was also, might have been, was that an influence maybe? I don't know, I don't, cause, no, because Fra Frank Rosetta was doing those covers for paperbacks before he was doing Warren covers. That's true. Um, so then, then there was the move to becoming, after Stan was kicked upstairs, as you said before, to being publisher, you took over as editor-in-chief at Marvel. I didn't take over. I was editor-in-chief. As long as Stan is there, <laughs> there's no question about who's in charge. You know? And nor did I care. You know, I wasn't eager to do anything that, I mean, you know, I wanted to do things different for Stan in certain little ways, and I could do them sometimes if Stan wasn't paying attention, or if he'd just give me my head because he had some respect for my, my own abilities. But there was no question ever who was in charge, you know. So as long were, as he was there until he left to, uh, he gradually gave it up, and I think by the time Shooter came in, he, he, he saw in Shooter, the same way he saw to some extent in me, somebody who understood him enough in a, in a better way than the people came in between, as good as those people were in their own ways. He never was happy, I don't think, with any other editors he worked with, really, although he liked them, other than Shooter and myself. You know? And, and once, once Stan uh, left, then, uh, you know, then things changed a little bit. But as long as Stan was there in New York, he was in charge if he wanted to be, even though that last year or two he was, you know, had one foot out the door on the plane to uh, Los Angeles as soon as he could figure out a way to get there. So he was effective editor even though you were editor and shift. Yeah. Well, you know, he, he, you know, he had to approve the covers, but of course Martin Goodman, his publisher, had approved the covers before. So, and I never really had much trouble with that. We clashed occasionally, sure, but uh, not that much. And, and, and you, you know, you know if, and the thing I liked about Stan was if he got mad about something or he snapped, I mean, I'd say something or other. I remember he wanted to change the name of the, the book Cull. We, I'd called it Cull the, the, uh, the Conqueror. Oh, yeah, that's you know, right. after Conan the car. And it, it wasn't selling that well, but the call has never for any company or at any time sold as well as Conan. You know, it's, not, not, it's similar character, but it's not quite as good somehow. And one day we're walking down the hall and he says, uh, I want to change the name of Cull the uh, Conqueror to Cull the Destroyer. That'll do better. And I said, and I just made the offhand comment, well, I doubt if that'll make much difference, you know. And he just stopped. They said, "Why are you being so negative?" Because all he, to him, you know, if he said if he had an idea, what I was supposed to say, "Yes, sir," you know, or not, "Sir," but "Yes, Stan." And you know, and and, what, and some, sometimes he'd accept, you know, my having a different version. And sometimes he just didn't want to hear it. He just wanted me to go do it, you know. So I so I did it. I you know I, I could learn very quickly that uh, you know that you know Stan was not a guy that you you know it, when when he was done arguing. Or, or explaining things or whatever, you know, he was done and you just went out and, and did it. See, and I think the reason is that if you worked at DC, you worked with a lot of other editors. Mark Weiser was kind of the first among equals by that time, and before that there had been others. But you had Bort, you had Julie Schwartz, there were four or five other people, Robert Kaninger, you know, and they were all kind of battling for their own little fiefdoms and things, which is why Superman and Batman couldn't be more prominent in Justice League for a while. It was all office politics. Mm. Well, Stan, Stan, my theory eventually became that, that Stan never had any equals. You know, there was Martin Goodman above him and the rest of us below him. You know? And he never had a peer. There was not another editor. You know, if he was either obeying Martin Goodman and not arguing with him too much or he was telling other people what to do, but he never got into that give and take of having to be an equal with other editors or having to get along with anybody because it was everybody else's job to get along with him. So you could say that. And he had that since he was 18 years old, you know. 
The Weiser group you could say was divide and conquer, whereas Stanley was more of a benign dictatorship. Just conquer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But but it worked for him. It worked for him. And the rest of us, uh, you know, with exception of maybe Jack or Steve, but the rest of us, as we came in, we just accepted this because we knew that Stan knew what he was doing. And the only person, the only people I think who really didn't, the only people who didn't think Stan knew what he was doing were a few of the artists. That always surprised me. The, the artists, had, a lot of the artists, because Stan wasn't an artist, they had a real blind spot. Kirby had one. He never read anything. I don't think that Stan ever wrote. He never understood that Stan was adding anything to the stories, which he definitely was from the very beginning. Steve felt that if he was doing the plotting and this and that, that Stan was just, you know, tinkling out words. And like I was reading something by Steve the other day, he was saying he was always disappointed and surprised that Everybody would say how he liked his work, and yet his other work, you know, whether it's Captain Adam or Hawk and the Dove or The Creeper or Static or start to nod off after a while, Shade the Changing Man or whatever, that they never sold as well as the Spider-Man stuff that, you know, and everything. And I was thinking, well, what is missing from that equation? <laughs> what was missing was Stan Lee and whether he plotted the stories. He was also the editor, remember, so not one page ever went out of Marvel Comics that Stan didn't say, this is okay, you know, and, and once he left, Steve never had that again, he never understood, and, you know, guys like John Buscema, you know, who got to, you know, hate Stan because, you know, they, they just didn't feel he understood, well, sometimes Stan made some mistakes with these people, he was not always the best, and, you know, we all make mistakes dealing with people, and Stan was not always the best, and that's why, you know, you know, he was alienated from Steve. Well, I think anybody would have been alienated from Steve. But uh, he, he wanted it that way, you know, more power to him. And, and, you know, Kirby, well, Kirby hated everybody he ever worked with eventually. He got to hate Simon. Within a year or two, he got to hate Carmine Infantino. I mean, you know, so he came back to Stan, whom he'd hated before, but he already knew. I mean, you know, uh, artists are difficult people, just like writers are. And, but some of these guys, the writers understood that Stan was adding a lot, you know, even if we didn't agree. The artists, I think a lot of them didn't quite understand. They thought he was there and they had to deal with him, but they didn't understand that he really knew what he was doing. I had no idea about Kirby and Simon. I always thought they got on, but anyway. They did, no, they did mostly. And, and, and I don't want to give, but I just meant that, I think, you know, there would be, you know, resentments. And I think by the time they left, there were some resentments. I, I think that they probably were a little better, you know, but still, I think Kirby was just the kind of a guy that was restive if anybody else was in charge, you know. You, could, you didn't want any of that. But you know, we all are to some extent. You know, Jack, the thing, the trouble with Jack was he, he, he gave out this myth and in later interviews and things, he would give out stories about, you know, what a fighter he was. And I'm sure he was a real scrapper on the streets of Brooklyn, I, I have no doubt. But when he, you talked to him with Stan or, or these other guys, you know, if, you know, he never said a word. He may have been frothing inside when Stan told him to change this or that. But with the exception of maybe one time, you know, when they had a fight and then he came out and he tore some Hulk pages in half, but not in front of Stan. And, uh, you know, he just, it was all, yes, yes, and did it. And then he'd come out and he'd rage to everybody else. Gil Kane would talk about, you know, Jack would come out of Stan's office, they'd go out to lunch, because they'd known each other for years, and he'd rage for the whole hour at lunch about Stan. But when he saw Stan next time, you know, Stan was totally unaware. So as a result, Stan, while he was maybe not totally surprised Steve Ditko quit, because they weren't, you know, on the same plane and weren't speaking, but Jack was more of a surprise, probably, that he quit was more of a surprise to Stan, even, than it was, say, to me or to maybe some other people at Marvel, because we... He knew there were strains, but he didn't know how, I don't think he saw as much as some of the rest of us did, how great those strains were. 
quite dysfunctional. I mean, he just couldn't actually voice his discontent with anything. Yeah. You know, well, so. you know, he was just a guy. He, he lived at the drawing board, you know, and everything. And he, and he wasn't a verbal guy. Later, he got to talking and building his, uh, his myth and so forth. But, you know, there was a lot at the base of that because Jack was, you know, in his own way, very much of a, at least a comic book genius as, uh, as Stan was, you know. We better talk about your move to DC after you had a little bit of a time with Shooter. Um, now that was an interesting move, and I remember at the time, because by that point I was going, the direct stores had opened and everything else, and I remember thinking, wow, you're a company man, the man who built up Marvel, Bronze Age, etc., etc., moving to DC, unbelievable. Was was it a surprise to yourself, or did it seem like a natural thing to do? Or no, it was a surprise. I didn't want to go, particularly. Uh, you know, after all, I'd, in 74, when I, you know, come to an impasse with Stan and stepped down as editor-in-chief, you know, uh, pushed out as much as, as going out, but by mutual agreement, I'd stayed around for six more years as long as I had a contract to be my own editor and so forth. I was very happy working. I could have been going on working forever. I liked the DC characters. I had offers all the time from Carmine Infantino and then uh, later from Jeanette Kahn to come to work for them. But, you know, I'd have never left Marvel, but... Uh, Jim Shooter came in there, and it wasn't just Jim. Actually, it was also Jim Galton as the, uh, the publisher. They wanted to, the president. They wanted to change the, the way they wanted to get rid of the writer editor thing, and uh, I wasn't willing to do that. Marv Wolfman was the first person they did that to, and I saw that, you know, it might happen. So I told, uh, I wrote uh, Jim or called, I forget, and said, you know, you know, I, I, I don't. Uh, if I'm not going to be the writer editor, I, I'm leaving. But I said, I understand that instead of being reporting to Stan directly now, because Stan's too busy, even though he hadn't quite moved to L.A., and I said, I understand I'll be working under you now instead of under Stan. I got no problem with that. You know, I got no problem with changing that and so forth. It's okay, you know. But if I'm not writer and editor, and if it's not guaranteed in writing, I'm not going to spend this couple hundred bucks or so or whatever it is, you know, getting the contract written by my lawyer. And he said, uh, I said, and you, you know, and you, you did that to Marv, so I said, I, I figured I may as well save you the trouble. He says, well, the way we treat Marv is not necessarily, that's the weasel word, by the way, not necessarily the way we'll treat you, not necessarily. So I got the contract all done, sent it into him, it was very simple, everything they wanted, except it says, you know, writer, editor, and I got paid a little for that. And he said, well, we can't guarantee that in the contract. Well, at this stage, I decided the bastard had lied to me as far as I was concerned. I don't care how he, so I, I quit. I called Paul Levitz said, okay, I'm ready, and that was it. And, uh, you know, and Jim and I have sort of made our peace between us, but I'll, you know, but, because it was, it was nothing personal, you know, it was no personal a animosity. He was, he was out to kill everybody, you know, that would have wanted to be editor yeah, or whatever. Shooter, yeah. But that's okay, but he was, and he was a talented guy, and he did a lot of good things for Marvel. I think Letting Me Go wasn't one of them, but it, was, it worked okay for me, I suppose, because I got to write my favorite comic book to write of all time, uh, more than Conan, more than Avengers, Invaders, or whatever, which was the All-Star Squadron book, which I enjoyed and would still be writing, you know, today if I could. Uh, but it was probably a bad career move because, you know, I never made the impact at DC that I made at Marvel, nor was I interested in. I remember what Barry Smith, the Conan artist, said when he was about to leave Marvel, and he was supposed to do Batman or something. And I said, why do you want to go to D.C.? You know, says, instead of staying at Marvel, you could do Conan, you could do Heroes, whatever you want to do. He says, 
says, well, says, I'm sort of losing interest in comics. He says, and going to DC is a little like quitting comics, he said, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny in 1971 or 72. And, but you know, later I got the feeling he made, because DC did good comics, and I loved their characters, but there was a different feeling. I felt I was just moving, you know, I was just moving down, and I could sort of do it, but I didn't really you know, care. I only cared about my own stuff at that stage and not anything else, and I enjoyed it. And when that sort of ran out after a few years, I, you know, I really never had any interest in DC anymore, and I was happy when I was able to come back to Marvel, even as not an editor, you know. And when you were at DC, of course, you worked with uh, your missus over there. Yes. Which uh, is very nice. And you had a little yeah. anecdote about uh, how she, she was the first person ever to write Wonder Woman, or having to do with the creation. Yeah, I was writing Wonder Woman. They'd asked me to write Wonder Woman, and, uh, but then they, God, they made me do a thing that had every character in it, and they, they chopped out a third of the book and gave it to the Huntress in the back. And I, so I said, ah, you know, you're not giving the emphasis to Wonder Woman. You said you were, so I quit soon after. So did Gene Cole, who didn't like drawing it anyway. But they had asked me to come back to write the special number 300. Why, I don't know. It was an exercise book. And I, so I, I got uh, Dan to, uh, to work with me there in 1980. Yeah, was it that yeah, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And she became, you know, I gave her credit, so she became the first woman to ever get a credit. She wasn't the first woman to write Wonder Woman. Uh, if you ever see my magazine, Alter Ego, you know, we had an interview with the 90-something-year-old lady who wrote uh, dozens of Wonder Woman stories back in the mid-40s. Uh, Joy, uh, well, she had several different names. And uh, Murchison was, was the name that, uh, I forget her maiden name, actually, is what she had then. But, you know, she never got any credit. So Dan, and, and I think in the same issue, we had the first woman ever to get credit as drawing Wonder Woman, who was um, Jan Dorsema. So that was all the same issue. I don't think she was necessarily my choice, but I thought it was kind of nice to do that with Wonder Woman number 300. After 300 issues, you finally had a woman you know, uh, working on the book out in the open. Yeah, she became a very decent artist. Um, we got a few minutes now they've left. taken over. I mean, Gail Simone has rewritten the origin of Wonder Woman, you know, I mean, of Red Sonia. And somebody asked me about it, I says, it doesn't count. I made up Red Sonia, her origin doesn't count. I don't care what they do in movies or anything else, you know. I forgot to mention Red Sonia. That's, That's okay. Yeah. Everybody um, does. I shouldn't. Um, time for a couple of questions. Jump over there. Only because I love All-Star Squadron. Um, do you feel that maybe that was a, um, a victim of Christ on Infinite Earths, or was it a victim of Paul Sales at the end? Well, it was, no, it was... Not selling as well at the end as it sold at the beginning. I, I could never replace Jerry Ordway and, and Rich Buckler, who had done the early issues and so forth. But it was doing okay. It would I think it would have limped along and maybe you know and so forth. No, the, it was all that damn crisis, you know, and everything, which was a well done book by Marv and, and uh, George Perez, but which destroyed what I liked about DC Comics. And, and once that was gone, I had no more interest in DC Comics. You know, uh, past just the idea of a paycheck, you know, and everything. Uh, I cooperated with it. You could, you know, when they, you know, there's all sorts of letters. I did. You know, once, what, if, once you're going to do, if they're going to do something, they're determined to do it. I may as well help them, and you know, and I made money out of it by doing issues that, you know, would sell more because they 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 tied in with crisis. You know, I mean, I'm in it to make a living, but I despise it from the minute. And if I could have undone it at any point or suddenly say stop, you know, I would have done it. I don't. I wouldn't have even cared it hurt or helped DC. I was only interested in my own stuff at that time. But I think. Uh, I always say that um, All-Star Squadron, I feel if there hadn't been for the crisis, I think we could have, you know, we'd been up to about three or 400 issues by now, and we might almost have got to 1943, you know. <laughs> That's the one comic book, although Conan would be probably, uh, or even Invaders, would be a second or third, uh, 
they're the, the, the only comics I think that I could go on writing forever. The only, the only ones, All-Star Squadron and Conan and Invaders are the ones that I feel I could just, I could write them forever because they're set in the Hyborian age and World War II and I don't have to look at television or movies or out my window to know what the world is like Probably so much. As a kid, I felt the love that you were pouring into each issue. I might certainly learn a lot about the history of America in the war. Although you were on it for a long time. Had a lot of Britain in there too. Yeah, Union Jack. Yeah. Mm. One it's of the few characters so I ever actually drew as a player. Yeah. Yeah. And Don Newton on mm. that absolutely brilliant mm. stuff. Well, brilliant, I don't know, but it did have a lot of passion in it. Uh, I had to because the artists were all these kids, you know, who. I mean, I don't remember World War II. You know, the, the earliest memory I have related to it is sitting on the floor with my parents looking at a newspaper and, and talking about the atomic bomb, you know, 45 when I was four years old. I have no, later they still had, you know, games with zeros and, you know, fighting, whatever. But, you know, I didn't really know much about it. I knew the war was kind of going on. Later, I, my father was like 4F or something, you know. And, uh, uh, but I had an uncle, you know, who gave me a hand grenade when he came back and I was throwing it at people for years, you know, never hit any of them, thank goodness. And, uh, you know, and I was very, but I don't know why, when I lived in New York, uh, I remember Torah, 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 the big movie about Pearl Harbor, was playing about two blocks away at a theater. I didn't even go see it for a while. So I was interested in the war, but I wasn't a fanatic about it. And then I began to write comics about it, and I found I really enjoyed that. And I was, you know, especially the home front stuff, but then, but then I brought them to England for a lot, you know, because after all, they're called the invaders. They've got to go somewhere besides America to invade something. And you, know why the, and you know why the book was called The Invaders? Uh, because, well, the thing is, back in 68, right before books like Hulk, or features like Hulk got their own books, Stan had done that one issue, was it number 100, in which uh, Submariner and, and Hulk fought for the whole issue, Marie Severin drew it, uh, Stan the man and Marie the she there doing that. And uh, he had had this idea, he liked that so much, he was thinking about really teaming them up, and, although they could have, I guess they'd have been fighting all the time, uh, in a series called The Invaders, just the two of them, you know, called The Invaders, you know. And uh, he changed his mind after a day, couple of days, decided, well, you know, after a while he would get old. So he didn't do that. So when I left, when Stan and I came to a difference that I uh, was going to leave and take a contract, besides Conan, I wanted a, bo a book or two that would keep me busy and outside the mainstream. I didn't want to write Spider-Man. I didn't want to have to... Con you know, he's in several books. I don't want to have to confer with the other writers to see what Spider-Man's doing and what we can do. I was, you know, I'd had nine, ten years by, of that by that time. So I figured i got to make a book. I said, and I remembered that Stan and Jack had done these uh, retellings of some of the old World War II Captain America stories. You know, and I, I liked that. So I said, if I, I'd like to tell stories set in World War II with Human Torch, Captain America, and Submariner, some of the older old characters, maybe a couple of new ones. And it's got Captain America, who's big. It's got a Human Torch, who's known, Submariner. So I go into Stan, and, 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 but I think I've got to have a name. So I go into Stan, I tell him this idea, and he's kind of looking there. Yeah, well, yeah, it's World War II. He wasn't real big on, you know, the idea of doing something in the past as such. I said, and i got a real great title. And he says, what is it? The Invaders. He forgot that he had, you know, had that idea several years earlier. By this time, it's about six, seven years earlier. And he says, I like the title, he said, you know, he said, okay, you can do it. And he just, you know, I never reminded him that, of course, that, he, that I had stolen the title from him, you know. I think he had stolen from the TV show that was on for about a year called The Invaders, but that was way in the past by that time. But, you know, you got to, you, you know, we, we try to trick each other, you know, on, on ways here and there. We, we, were, we were a pretty good team.
And uh, Invaders was uh, never a big seller, but uh, Frank Robbins uh, knew World War II stuff, and he, he was a great uh, collaborator on the stuff, even if the kids never liked his, his work that much. Yeah, he was an unusual artist. He yeah. didn't quite work for coming. No. Um, I just say we're going to have to wrap it up. Apologies, I can't do more questions because it's now one o'clock. We'll give a big thanks to Roy Thomas. Thank you very much.